This is The Radical Therapist, a space where we explore the intersections of collaborative therapy, philosophy, art and science and technology in a post-Freud, post-psychology world. Good afternoon, Radical Therapist listeners. This is Brian Doster of the Radical Therapist podcast, and we are now on episode 81. Uh, You may have heard my voice a few times in the past, and I have returned to be a guest host um, for another episode of this amazing podcast. With everything that is going on in the world regarding COVID-19 and racial injustice, Dr. Hoff has been gracious enough to share his platform with me to allow more conversations about black lives and mental health. I want to be sure to appreciate him for his consistent allyship and desire to make a difference in the world and the lives of others. So on today's show, we have a guest by the name of Dr. Adolph Brown, who is a clinical psychologist and social justice advocate. Dr. Brown is known for his work around uh, what is coined as the empathy gap. In addition to that work, he has authored books and he is a much sought after and highly effective unconscious bias, equity, diversity and inclusion keynote speaker where he skillfully addresses the impact of stereotypes. Today, Dr. Brown and I will have a conversation about black men and the mental health stigma, specifically the phrase man up can lead to man down. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Brown to the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Brown, to the Radical Therapist podcast. Uh, We thank you for taking the time to be with us on today. Uh, I want to go ahead and jump into the questions in regards to our conversation today. How does that sound? That sounds great. Awesome. So, Dr. Brown, it is not lost on me um, that we are having a conversation about black men and mental health stigma. And we both have centered ourselves in the mental health profession. So if you could just share with the listeners, how did you come into the field and how did you go beyond the stigma? Okay. Well, my mother, just uh, I guess the quick story, my mother and father divorced when I was two. Uh, We had a fairly stable middle-class lifestyle. Uh, When dad left, uh, woke up one day and decided he didn't want it anymore. My mother uh, had five children at the time and we moved to the inner city projects. Um, my oldest sibling and only brother became my hero. His name was Oscar. He was murdered when I was 11. Mm. And that kind of took me uh, on a roller coaster of emotions, um, just many things, uh, poor decision making. I eventually uh, got it together. I had a grandfather and grandmother who didn't live too far away, and the, uh, they were farmers. Okay. So oftentimes when I got in trouble in the city, I'd go spend time with them. So, uh, He'd walk the perimeter of the farm with me and just give me all kinds of wise advice. First person in my family of five to graduate high school had school counselors and cheerleaders and teachers uh, who told me I could go much farther than I thought I could. So uh, college was uh, in my future. Went to the College of William & Mary, where I majored, double majored in anthropology and psychology uh, as an undergrad before kind of going into master's and doctorate. 
but it was through psychology and anthropology that I discovered that even though I loved baseball, I was uh, at the College of William and Mary on a track uh, scholarship and academic scholarship, but I love baseball. I love wrestling. I thought one day I'd be a professional baseball player. And uh, I realized through anthropology that I really like people, that I wanted to learn more about people. I thought with an undergraduate major in psychology, I would also learn about myself, which I didn't. It was more theory. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I did decide I, lo- I love people. I wanted to learn more about people. So I pursued a master's in psychology and education. And that's when I started to kind of wake up. Um, I started to kind of, I wanted to know those deeper layers of myself, why I made the decisions that I made. In public education, I was a student with one foot in gifted education and one foot in alternative education. So I was a little bit perplexing for most. Um, was smart, um, made really good grades, but uh, was temperamental, mm. <laughs> to say the least. Mm-hmm. Had a lot, of, a lot of baggage. And uh, went on uh, from the master's in education and psychology, went on to uh, get a doctorate in clinical psychology because I was learning so much about myself. I was uncovering stuff that I never knew about myself that I said, you know what, if this works with me, I could really help others. And the program that I was in, I, I'm, I started off as a structural family therapist, uh, Mnuchin model. Yes, My mentor to this day is Dr. Mike Nichols, okay. who wrote the book, The Lost Art of Listening. Um, However, I ended up being trained in uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapy. We ha- in the program that I was in, I had you have to you had to choose a modality of therapy that you had to undergo for a year. So, you know, I would recommend that to anyone in our field because it truly takes out the uh, judgment that some therapists can have, mm-hmm. even though we're in the joining profession, the helping profession. Uh, it removes that barrier when you're on the couch or in the other seat. Absolutely. So I underwent psychoanalysis and my life changed. My entire life changed. Uh, I learned things about myself. I learned things about my family. Um, I was able to look in the mirror for the first time in my life and love everything about that guy that was reflected back to me. I love the, the mistakes and the, and the poor choices. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, of course, I love the triumphs, but I love the valleys. Mm-hmm. And, and it's from those that I am the man I am today, the husband, the father, the son, the brother. So um, that's my journey in a nutshell. Thank you so much. And so when we think about mental health stigma and black men, Um, Can you tell us how does stigma and racism play a role in black men receiving mental health treatment? Oh, certainly. Certainly. First of all, we we have to look at the medical profession and and how the medical profession has uh, regarded black men in the past. And of course, I could go all the way back to uh, the trauma of slavery. and, And I'll touch on that. But just here and now. When we look at the research, the, the Tuskegee syphilis study, mm-hmm. where black men were uh, left to suffer with syphilis so that the medical providers could actually see the course of the disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's just one study. And there are countless studies uh, whereby we, black men were said to have smaller brains and, and as a result of it, couldn't learn um, 
as as other populations or other cultures. So there is that there's a a, a distrust mm-hmm. a, a a distrust of a medical profession that that vows to do no harm, mm-hmm. but has a history of doing harm to black men. Mm-hmm. So so that's one part of it. I, I think the other part when when we talk about racism. Uh, it goes back to um, the stereotypes that were said about black men who were enslaved, that they were happy-go-lucky, that nothing got them down, that and 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 that that was um, that that continued in mental health treatment. As you can see, when diagnosis came along, it, it was very difficult for challenging for therapists to ever uh, look beyond issues. Uh, beyond like schizophrenia mm-hmm. <laughs> for black men. Mm-hmm. So it, it, there, that distrust with the latent, either implicit or explicit bias mm-hmm. that occurs in mental health is a very serious um, barrier when it comes to black men and their reception of mental health uh, treatment. Mm-hmm. And so in your professional uh, experience, do you think that there is an overemphasis of psychiatry as the main source of mental health treatment? Certainly. Certainly. I think we uh, have become a society where <laughs> we think that uh, pills instead of skills, mm. when in fact I'm from um, a philosophy that both tend to work well together. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, definitely. And, and, and that is another stigma in and of itself, where black men don't want to become dependent on substances. Uh, many don't know what they're taking um, beyond what a doctor says. So, so that skepticism and, and everything that the community has said as well, mm-hmm. uh, the, the community has said, uh, are you taking those pills, mm-hmm. those pills, mm-hmm. um, and and not attempting to be pejorative, but growing up in a community that I grew up in, they were called crazy pills. Mm. So so when, when you have when 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 you grow up in a in a system that perpetuates that, and then you find yourself in need of help, mental health help there becomes a silence, you know, the stigma results in a silence and it, they turn, black men turn within. Mm-hmm. You said, so there's this, you, you are saying that there's a space for me to get help, but I don't know how to necessarily use my voice to get it because it may um, mean that I'm weak or I don't, I can't access. Do you mean, know what I'm saying? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. There's a there's great a, a big space to get help. Mm-hmm. However, the conversation and now we've talked about the systems outside of uh, the black men, mm-hmm. man. But let's talk about black men mm-hmm. and and how what we can do better. So the conversation with the two of us, when we see each other, if we say what's good, then it you know it, if something's going on, and I say man, you know. Um, my 17 year old is wiling out Mm -hmm. and you say to me, handle your business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you're implying two things to me when you say, handle my business. Um, One, you're, you're implying that you can't help. And and secondly, you're telling me that 
it, it's really kind of a personal responsibility that I need to get it together. Mm-hmm. And so, so it, it's a conversation that we're having. Um, there's other things that we say to our children. We say to each other, Hey man, um, you know, I got this stress on the job and it's like overwhelming. Mm-hmm. A, a common phrase among black men is man up. Mm-hmm. What about employee assistance programming? What about EAP? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so, so there, there's a narrative that we are responsible for as well. Mm-hmm. But, but, but in, 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 in talking about that narrative, we, we can't discard as you, as you brought the conversation up earlier, we can't, uh, disregard the fact that it's within a system of racism. Mm-hmm. It's, it's within a system of distrust mm-hmm. whereby it, we're not uh, imagining distrust. There's a history of empirical data that supports maladaptive treatment of black men. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think about uh, as you being a clinical psychologist and you're privileged to sit across from people who tell you their stories. I wonder if you could help listeners understand how stories begin to dismantle stigma, how telling your story begins to dismantle stigma. Well, first of all, when you're telling your story, you're almost to a point of accepting it. When it, when it gets outside of you, I mean, that's the reason we tell people to uh, write goals on the wall, mm-hmm. write goals on your mirror, mm-hmm. because once it's outside of you, you see it, your brain sees it, you're able to actually make sense of it, better sense of it. Mm-hmm. Once you start telling your story, you hear it, mm-hmm. you're listening to it. When, when there are gaps in it, you're like, hold it. Oh, th- this is what happened as well. So you're actually piecing together your history. Mm-hmm. And most of us don't get the opportunity to tell our stories. I, I think as therapists as well, that privileged seat that we have, it's important to recognize that minimal amounts of self-disclosure is also appropriate. Mm-hmm. So occasionally when there's a pause or a, a client may ask me, so have you ever been through that? And, and I'll give minimal examples of my story almost to mirror, mm-hmm. to, to help my client come more forth, uh, be more forthcoming with their story. Mm-hmm. But storytelling, there, there's so much power in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I thank you for saying that about this minimal self-disclosure. And I'm going to try to make this link. So I know you do a lot of work in the area of diversity, inclusion, and equity. How important are the effects of communicator similarity in healthcare, right? When you talk about this minimal disclosure and you talk about communicator similarity, people are seeing you and hearing you, right? Um, can you give a little insight into that? Sure. Th- that actually came from one of my master's theses. Uh, it was called The Effects of Communicator Similarity in Healthcare Recommendations. And I focused on, at that time, giving the message of HIV and AIDS prevention. Mm. And it was for African-American male and female college students. What we did is we had different presenters present the same message. And then we evaluated how well the message was received by the participants. Mm-hmm. 
we were using the research of doctors Nathan and Julia Hare, who did this phenomenal research on communicator similarity being a part of the puzzle, not just in mental health and, and medicine and education, that having someone across from you that's likely, just because we look the same, doesn't mean that we will have the same story, but the likelihood of us having some similar universal truths are very strong. Mm -hmm. So that's huge when it comes to black men. A, a black man that walks into an office for uh, therapy mm -hmm. and the therapist does not look like him, by in no means can that therapist not help that black male. However, there are going to be other assumptions that are going to have to be dealt with on top of the baggage that's brought in to bear. Mm -hmm. So communicator similarities, it starts to help build that foundation of trust between yes. clinicians and the, and yes. the patient. Okay. Yes. That, the, the, the moment that, the moment that some, we saw, then this wasn't a part of our study, but we were able to go back and look at videotapes to see. We could see uh, facial changes, posture changes, postural changes, when communicators looked like the participants. Mm -hmm. It was almost just like a, like a, a breath of, like, <gasps> mm -hmm. and we're hearing more about this now in education and other places. Um, I've even taken this research, uh, research to the Office of Juvenile Justice and Malinquency Prevention as it pertains to judges and lawyers and juries. So it, 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 it's quite important that you have an opportunity for someone to understand your story. It's one thing to tell you my story and you can, uh, you know, have an empathic response, but it's another thing when you're sitting across from me and I'm telling you, and you've been through it already, you're not having to put on my shoes. The same things happen to you in your shoes. Dr. Brown, I imagine prior to you becoming Dr. Brown, uh, you just were Adolf Brown. I imagine you had um, experiences of communicator similarities. And I imagine you being able to be, when you found the research, like, oh, that's what it is, right? Can you tell me about that? What, what did that feel like when you got to experience the research to go along with your life experience? That's a phenomenal question. And just you asking it uh, uh, cuts my heart. All of my research, everything that I've ever researched has come from that place. Mm -hmm. my, my doctorate, my dissertation topic is being used all over the world right now. African-American males perception of law enforcement, a psychophysiological perspective, mm. not paper and pencil. We hooked them up to all kinds of things to show physiological reactivity. But back to the master's thesis at the College of William & Mary, which many consider uh, the oldest college in our country. It only matters on Jeopardy. But, um, <laughs> but um, so I'd go to, I went to this college and it was, I, I didn't have the privilege. I, okay, you may say I had privilege to go to college, but I was in an environment where I did not have the privilege that others had. And, and in a sense, I could be in a lecture room, a lecture hall, say introductory psychology of 200 students. If I were absent, and 200 students, my professor would say, 
in front of everybody. Adolf, I missed your last class. Mm. Okay. I, I know why you missed me. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was either me or, or my wife. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so things like that. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, I felt um, a little bit of recognition that I wasn't invisible, but then there was a, an extreme of that. There were small seminar courses that when we talked about black issues, so Adolf, what do you think? Mm-hmm. So now I'm the representative. Now we're studying all of this, this lit review of 50 years. You know, I'm in my early twenties, but I'm the representative of all of these generations. Mm-hmm. So, so, I was wondering, you know, what's going on? How would my experience at this college have been better? Mm-hmm. Well, my experience would have been better, could have been better, had I had more professors that not only understood me, but looked like me. One of the reasons I majored in anthropology uh, was because of a professor by the name of Dr. Eric Aizzi. And he looked like me. I could go to his office and sit with him and tell him what was, going, what was happening to me on campus. And, and he would tell me about it. I remember telling him how I didn't like wearing my varsity jacket because many of the students, when we would have personal conversations, assumed that was the only reason I was able to get there. Mm-hmm. Not because of my uh, SATs or my GPA, but because of I was an athlete. And he would, he would talk to me, listen to me. But then one day he said, I want you to read about a person by the name of uh, Arthur Ashe. I'd never heard of Arthur Ashe. And he's like from my same state. So I pull out and I read, and then we started talking about a term I didn't never heard of before. Doctor Aizzi said, "Opportunity cost." Mm. So I I was able to have mentors that helped guide my research, and my research wasn't just for me. My research was things that I knew people who looked like me would benefit from. So I wasn't that guy that went to school to get you know. You ask most people what their master's degrees are in, or you know, they did it just to complete a program. And, and they probably won't ever look at it again. I did some real serious stuff, stuff that took time, uh, stuff that my advisors sometimes were uncomfortable <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, supervising. Mm-hmm. But I did it because of those issues that I did experience, as you said. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to pivot to anger in black men. Uh, where does that come from? Where do you think it comes from? Well, I, I think the anger is actually hurt in disguise. The anger is hurt in disguise. And many black men are brought up that it's not okay to cry. It's not okay to express your feelings. Now, I also need to say here, we need to go back to the historical trauma of racism. If I were um, a black enslaved male with a wife and children during those times, my feelings wouldn't have helped me very much if the slave owner's wife chose not to have relations with him that evening and a slave owner decided to come to wherever we were, my family, and take my wife. The feelings that I have around that would be on a continuum of suicide and homicide. Mm. And what would it do to the, to the individual? What would it do to the children if the black male was to show 
his anger, his resentment, his rage, his hurt behind that. Mm -hmm. And that was a common practice. It was a common practice where someone's loved one was taken and raped. Mm -hmm. And the relationship, and many times those, those individuals were sent back into their nuclear families. Mm-hmm. So we talk about where this, this, the feelings of black men have been, you know, they hold them close to their chest. Well, guess what? It was a survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. It was a survival mechanism. Yes. And over time, you know, and, unless we stop it, it continues. Mm-hmm. I think that's a powerful statement that, we are having a conversation about a people, black men specifically, where your feelings couldn't do anything. No one cared about your feelings. Exactly. Exactly. And I use the spouse or the, but what, what happens when your children are sold off mm-hmm. in your face, mm-hmm. your family is broken up in. So, so do you attack everyone that's doing it? Mm-hmm. Because then if you, if my life is taken, what happens to my bride? What happens to the other children? Mm-hmm. So it's been generations whereby this hurt, and I, and I don't start it at anger. I started at hurt mm-hmm. of being crushed, being devastated, mm-hmm. where this has been pushed way down deep that that valley that we want black men to open up and walk through and 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 be able to see that you know i can make it through it but that that's been closed off for many and it's historical Mm -hmm. how do you think um media um supports mental health stigma um and the silencing of kind of sharing your hurt with others or sharing your hurt with a therapist? How do you think they either silence it or support it? I'm, 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 I think the media attempts to do a good job, but I think what has been more beneficial are the celebrities and various people within the media mm-hmm. who, who have not been silenced, mm-hmm. who, who have, who come out and actually talk about things. Uh, Kid Cudi mm-hmm. came out. He talked about his bout with depression and suicide. Uh, Jennifer Lewis, uh, bipolar depression. Janet Jackson and depression. The Rock, mm-hmm. Dwayne uh, Johnson, um, talked about having a breakdown, a mental breakdown. And the list goes on. Wayne Brady, uh, depression. And, and uh, one of my favorite, uh, DMX. He talked. <laughs> <laughs> yes. DMX, a very public display of, of what he's been through with uh, addiction as well as bipolar disorder. So is it the media or is it uh, people within the community that are saying, hey, it, we, we no longer have to be silent about this. We can get help. I got help. You can do it too. I, I like that um, because I think that there these figures, these um, pop culture figures are saying it's okay to ask for help, right? And so what does it mean for some black men to ask for help, in your opinion? Well, I, I think asking for help and uh, 
in a community whereby machismo uh, is seen as a strength, to ask for help implies weakness mm -hmm. for some. And, or that you can't take care of your business by yourself, that you lack independence, self-sufficiency, and, and other things. So I, I think that's what it implies because if you ask most black men of yesteryears, what was what it meant to be a man, a lot of times you would hear protector and provider. Now, protector only came as of recent. It was provider because historically, how could we protect? Mm. So now we're talking about protector, provider, and nurturer. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about the whole man, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I think when we talk, when we ask for help, traditionally we, we're seen as that we lack the ability that many men have. Mm -hmm. And and that's a, that, that's, that's false. Mm -hmm. We all need help. Every one of us. I, I tell everyone, whether it's a seminar or wherever it's, we're all broken. Mm -hmm. We're all flawed. The issue becomes when you're able to, to recognize your brokenness, accept your brokenness. You know, it, it, we learned a long time ago, we're only as sick as our secrets. And when you're only as sick as your secrets, what it means, you don't have to blab to others what's going on with you. That's what makes it a secret. You have to know what you're carrying. Because if you don't know what you're carrying, you're going to bleed on people who didn't cut you. That's hurting people who didn't hurt you. Mm -hmm. And and that's kind of where we are, not as black men, that's where we are as a society. Mm -hmm. And being willing to go beyond the mask, right? And step into yeah. the vulnerability. Um and that's and that's and that's challenging. Mm -hmm. Now you say vulnerability, and I get it, and I love, I, I love the buzzwords now. But <laughs> in a society where we know implicit bias and explicit bias, mm -hmm. when we know how things operate in structures and how systems maintain the isms, for me as a black man to go into my workplace and just lay it all out, I'm unsure. If uh, if that's not going to have uh, repercussions, negative repercussions for me. Mm -hmm. So that's when we talk about vulnerability, that's a privilege. Mm -hmm. That's a privilege uh, that select few have. But we throw that term out as if everybody uh, can do that. As if everybody has access to it. Yeah, to it. Exactly. You're right. I mean, you're right. It is a, a buzzword. <laughs> and Dr. Hoff would probably say the same thing. That vulnerability is definitely more of a buzzword <laughs> than a reality yes. <laughs> that many can access. <laughs> um, so I am going to ask you, what books or ideas are capturing your attention these days that you can share with our audience? Oh, well, um, I don't think that the one that um, I'm thinking of kind of segues into what we're talking about, but it can uh, the book that I'm into right now is called Why We Sleep. <laughs> okay. Um, and I picked it up because, uh, like most people with this uh, pandemic, I had a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I knew a little bit about the professor who wrote it and very research-based, but uh, he's been doing the research for years, but finally put it into a popular book. And I sometimes like to read about things that aren't uh, necessarily common knowledge. 
I think many of us take sleep for granted. Sure. And there, there's so many things that, uh, I, it's the little things that I find in my sessions that help people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's kind of like I tell people the importance of sleeping, taking naps and what it does when we don't. I had, um, clients not too long ago, um, prior to the pandemic, going on vacation. Kids went back to school after vacation. Teachers saying they can't concentrate. Um, they're, they're all over the place. Uh, the young lady sometimes, the young girl in the family sometimes breaks down and cries. Talk to them about, you know, vacation. You know, that's when it, after it started. What happened? Oh, well, nothing. I mean, you know, and of course you're thinking that I need to dig deeper. Of course. So they go back and they tell me their story mm-hmm. on their vacation. So maybe three hours in there for, on uh, driving in a vacation, a deer ran in the road. The father swerved to miss the deer, but flipped the car over. Mm-hmm. The car flips, but lands upright. Father gets out, checks everything, walks around the car, car's okay, makes sure everybody in the family's okay, and drives off. They go on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it was it was that thing, mm-hmm. that that event, that contributed to many of the things that were were, were happening to his children in school. So that, that's kind of the the kind of take I take. I, the books I pick up, the books I write, I, I try to kind of give different perspectives on things that have been talked about a thousand times. Got it. Well, as we wrap up, I want to invite you to um, kind of give a summation of what we talked about through the lens of the empathy gap as it pertains to uh, black men and mental health stigma. And also, please share with people how they can connect with you. OK, thank you. The, the empathy gap is something that came out of my dissertation with regards to African-American males' perception of law enforcement. That was not my original study. My original study was law enforcement perception of African-American males, where I was going to hook the law enforcement uh, participants up to the lie detector, the galvanic skin response, the respiration, everything, blood pressure. I didn't have any um, law enforcement precincts agree to my study. Mm-hmm. And um, it was actually kind of turned down maybe two or three times, and then I reversed it. So what I was able to get out of my study were two things. Um, re- the racism reaction, which actually shows a psychophysiological reactivity to perceived slights. Um, when a police officer comes in a room, white males had a spike. When a police officer came in for African-American males, there was a spike. After the perceived threat, after police officer even explained that he was only there as a part of the study, white males went down, black males continued to rise. Mm-hmm. So um, and this study can be found on Old Dominion University's website. They hosted at the research website, Old Dominion University, and just put in African-American males perception of law enforcement, Dr. Adolph Brown. And so that's the racism reaction. Um, we also kind of talked about microaggressions in that as well. And we also talk about the historical traumas. 
the empathy gap came as a result of the trainings that I started to do for law enforcement, explaining that empathy and sympathy are very different. Uh, sympathy is I'm, I'm here, you over there, and what you're going through sucks. I'm glad it's not me. Mm-hmm. Empathy, on the other hand, um, you know, everyone uses the saying, you know, putting on someone else's shoes, but that's not exactly how I explain it. The empathy gap is something that can be closed, not necessarily in a seminar, but when you're alone and by yourself and what your narrative is when you're watching these things occur. What are you saying to yourself when you're watching riots on television, protests on television? What are you saying when there's a black male on television from a profile, side profile, and and they say all these other things about what this person is likely to be charged with? What is your narrative? So it's not until we can address that internal narrative that we can truly be empathic with others. So, you know, most of us want to start with, um, you know, your why, you know, that, that's the buzzword now in professions. What is your why? My thing is, there's a question before your why, who am I? Hmm. The most courageous conversation you're ever going to have is the courageous conversation with yourself. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Brown, for joining us and joining the Radical Therapist podcast. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Okay, that's our show. Hope you enjoyed our conversation. You can find the Radical Therapist podcast on all social media platforms. If you so happen want to find me, I am located on Instagram at Brian, B-R-Y-A-N dot the dot therapist. Again, my name is Brian Doster, and I want to thank you all for listening today. Mm